Well, let's go ahead and start then. Um, I was looking at these uh, questions a few minutes ago, and it looks like we've got some really good questions here today. Um, Okay, right. So the first question is from Matt Van Leeuwen. And is Matt here? Yes, Chilla Dasa, yeah. I'm here. Oh, there you are. Oh, so it says John, but I guess it's, it's Matt. Okay, great. All right. So, um, That's it. You say you learned the first four pleasure jhanas from Brasington's book and a subsequent week-long retreat with two Brasington authorized teachers. You can access the jhanas outside retreat as long as you practice consistently at home for two to three hours per day. However, they're not as deep and undistracted as on retreat. Yeah, that's not unusual. Uh, what to do when the jhana does not fill the full bandwidth of consciousness, in particular jhanas two to four, it feels like I can direct my awareness in different ways, and it feels like there's still bandwidth to include other sensations, like the body posture, in addition to the relevant jhana factors. Okay, and you ask, should you include awareness of the body, as the Buddha seems to suggest? Uh, for example, for the third jhana, yes, and there's a quote there. Um, and so, just to put this into context, um, because you're doing the pleasure jhanas, uh, I would assume that you're probably in uh you're probably in stage seven practicing in stage seven and that uh um you have exclusive attention uh and and powerful mindfulness but it still requires vigilance and effort to sustain correct okay so so what you're what what you have is an access concentration. When you go into the first jhana, then that's going to become effortless. And that's the apana samadhi. You're going from upachara samadhi to apana samadhi. And then when you go to the higher jhanas, you still have awareness of, of your body. Now, these jhanas are... Uh, they, they, some of the deeper jhanas, you're really withdrawing the mind from the senses. And for, uh, for the, the pleasure jhanas, that's not really the case. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, most people in the pleasure jhanas, the, they mostly perceive the body just as a, a collection of pleasurable sensations but that is very much present in awareness. And so that is normal. 
And so the answer would be uh, yes, just, uh, just as uh, that quote that you provided from the Buddha where he's discussing third jhana. He's discussing a jhana that where the senses have not completely withdrawn or the mind has not completely withdrawn from the senses. And so at that level, it's quite appropriate. Now, um, it's really the degree to which you're fully utilizing the bandwidth of awareness in the higher jhanas depends, uh, of course, it, it depends on the depth of your uh, uh, concentration and access, but it's also going to depend on the quality of the first jhana where your attention is fully occupied by pleasantness. And it's not unusual that there, you know, I, I, I say focus on the quality of pleasantness, the vedna of pleasantness, uh, and try to do that rather than focusing on whatever parts of your body are pleasurable. But that, uh, you know, that, that doesn't always happen. So if you were wanting to expand the bandwidth of your, of your pleasure jhana practice, then this is where I would, this is where I would put my emphasis is when you enter that first jhana and your attention is, op is, is focused on the vedana of pleasantness. And in this case, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to involve some of the body. But you just try uh, to make it, try to define your scope of attention prior to entering first jhana to be just those, just that quality of pleasantness. Does, does that sound like something that you can do? So that would, that would begin in your access, in the access stage, when you're, when you're focusing on, on the pleasure. And that would continue into the first jhana. And to the degree that, that your at attention in the first jhana is, is still, to some degree, uh, uh, including in its scope the, the bodily sensations giving rise to, to, or, to or the, I should say the bodily sensations, yeah, from the part of your body where the Vedana of, of pleasantness is being produced is, are still going to be there. So to the degree that you can narrow your scope down a little bit in first jhana, you'll be able to accomplish that. But what you suggest, if there's still lots of body awareness, go ahead right into third jhana and just, just allow that, that pleasantness of the body to be there. It's not a problem. The whole, pro the whole purpose of the jhana at this stage is, to, is for your mind to learn to enter into this kind of, uh, of flow state of the mind, you know, a unique flow state of the mind that constitutes, constitutes jhana, so that when you come back out of the jhana, you can achieve that same uh, effortless apana samadhi that characterizes the jhana, so that you can attain that without being in jhana. And at that point, you will have, you, you will be in the final stages of mastery of seventh, uh, the seventh stage and ready to move on into the eighth stage with this very powerful, very stable mind. Does that help you? 
Yes, it does. Um, and, and does that already answer the next question? Uh, let me look at that. Uh, do the Rupa and or Arupa jhanas, jhanas provide a temporary shortcut from state seven to a higher state? Well, yes, that does pretty well answer that question. That's exactly what they do. And your related question three, when in stage seven, how often and how long do you recommend spending in the jhanas if the goal is to move on to the higher stages? Well, yeah, I, the, the idea is you spend some time in the jhana and then you come back and you come back to the breath at the nose and you come out of the jhana and you see if you can, if, if you can sustain effortless attention you know, and if you can for a while, but then you, you can't sustain it, then you might go back to doing the jhana again. But your goal, once you're able to, to let go of the vigilance and effort uh, post jhana, then you, you've accomplished the, you've, it's accomplished its purpose. And you'll, in the next stage, you'll be working with a deeper jhana. So, um, remember, just, just keep it in mind, the jhana practice uh, is a means to an end. Although you could, if you wanted to, you could decide to explore uh, fourth jhana, perhaps even move into, uh, into the formless jhanas. But in that case, what you would be doing is, is you'd be going a little bit beyond what, uh, what we're interested in doing is developing developing these mental faculties to the degree that you're just super ripe for insight and then moving into those adept practices that give rise to, to insight. Uh, the jhana practice can do that, but I think you need the deeper jhanas in order to, for them to, to, in order to really use them as insight practice. So I would recommend that just keep in mind that the purpose of the pleasure jhanas is to be able to achieve that sustained, effortless, uh, exclusive attention and powerful mindfulness that you need to move into stage eight. And if you, even before you can sustain that regularly, if you have longer periods when you can, you can go ahead and begin doing stage eight practices, okay? Thank you, that's very helpful. You're welcome. Um, next is Chase. Let's check and see if Chase is here. Chase isn't here, but I think this is someone who's never had a question answered before, so. Let's, let's answer Chase's question. <clears throat> okay, he says, I found your ideas on lack of reincarnation very illuminating. There is, however, a question I am still unclear on. In daily life, there appears to be a continuity of experience. I go to bed at night and wake up the next morning in the same bed and body as before. Although my body and bed may have changed a bit overnight, they aren't somebody else's body entirely. It would certainly be very startling if I woke up as my, as my neighbor or my cat. Uh, so even without an inherent self, there still seems to be some continuity of this experience. And yes, uh, yes, Chase, absolutely. This is, this is, uh, this is Samapada. This is, uh, this is the causal connectedness of absolutely everything. And uh, there is a, there is a causal chain here that that uh, uh, it, it, that's why we have the continuity of these five aggregates throughout life uh, the how would you say the the sort of pattern can remain the same even though the components change and 
uh, one example would be to think about a, a whirlpool in a, in a stream, uh, where an eddy forms in a stream and creates a whirlpool, is that uh, the whirlpool seems like a, a single object that, uh, you know, I'm looking at the same whirlpool, I, I can walk away and I can come back and see the same whirlpool there, yet we know that the water's flowing through. Now, of course, all the components of your bed and your body aren't changing as quickly, but it's all about the continuity, not about whatever the, whatever the components are that uh, are, um, that continuity of, of causality is acting upon. So, okay, so you go on to say the continuity also appears to follow causes and conditions. Yes, well, that, yeah, that's what I was just saying. If I go visit my friend's house, my experience is there until I leave. If I think and act wholesomely, wholesome results and experience follows. Yes. What I'm getting at is that this continuity follows along with the causal rules of reality. Oh, right, sorry, if I'd gone ahead and read that second part of it, uh, I, I wouldn't have had to. <laughs> say what I did but okay here we get I think to the meat of it with that in mind it seems very puzzling why I find myself in this particular body <laughs> my intuition tells me something must have caused me to begin here why do I find myself living the life of this person and not some other person does this continuity abruptly begin at birth and end at death uh, is there a causality that brought about the birth of this experience? Well, I think there's kind of a juncture here in this question that I would like to make. I, I'd like to, uh, let's take a, let's make a break uh, at the end of uh, the sentences. Why do I find my, myself living the life of this person and not some other person? Well, the idea here, Chase, is that this sense of self that you have and this concept of self that is related to um, to you, your genes and just about every event that has happened to you in, in your entire life up to this moment there is this chain of, of continuity that chain of continuity, because you are a human being and because you have the kind of mind that you have, is going to generate the sense of I and me. Now that sense of I doesn't have any kind of substantive reality of its own. And uh, so no matter what, no matter whose, whose body uh, you happened uh, and I, oh, how, to, how to put this there is no you that could occupy another person's body because the sense of I me mine is something that's created by every human body and to some degree by uh, uh, animals that uh, are uh, not as complex as humans this sense of self uh, is something that goes back to very very early uh, in the evolution, the point in the evolution of a brain, uh, and so we find it to some degree or another in in animals with brains. The sense of being a separate self. Uh, they don't necessarily articulate it as I, because uh, presumably they don't. They're they're 
uh, conceptual capabilities fall short of the human. But what I'm pointing out is that the question, why me? No matter, everybody will ask that question, why me? Or, or who am I? Why am I in this particular body? What they're doing is they're separating this mind-constructed sense and concept of I from the body that has given rise to it. Okay? So, you could, everybody's I is the same. They're identical. If you exchanged eyes with somebody else in a different body, you would never know it. Okay? The only way you would know it is if you could somehow bring along all the memories and other ideas of who you are. You know, I'm the kind of person that does this and doesn't do that and likes this and doesn't like that and that this happened to and that has never happened to and so on and so forth. That's just the memories. That's the memories that go along with one mind and body. But the I, the sense of I and the, and the idea of, of I-ness, that's identical in everyone. So no matter, so I, I hope you can see that this is really the point at what we're getting at here with uh, the idea that, that that is not a self, that is a fabrication of the mind. And that fabrication of the mind, while it was very useful evolutionarily, it's the cause of, the, of almost all human suffering. And that freeing ourselves seeing that that is just a mental construct, that there isn't sub, some substantive entity, uh, you know, e even some ethereal entity that constitutes a self. That is the liberating thing that we're, we're looking at. So, yes, in your body and in your mind, it's all causality. Now, what we do is we tend to look at our body and our mind and we tend to think in terms of a kind of linear causality that isn't accurate. When I say that you're the product of your genes and you're also the product of every experience you've ever had, then those, those experiences are what make you are what you are right now. In a parallel universe, Maybe a child could have been born with the same set of genes of you, uh, that you have, but a different uh, sequence of events could have made up their life. If we look at any one of those events, we see that it's not, we can't point to one or two or three things and say that's the cause of this event. What we find is that ultimately, everything in the history of the known universe has causally added up to that event occurring right now. You see, so what makes you up, even the causality that you recognize and experience, you're right on in terms of, yes, that's what, that's what makes you, that particular five aggregates that is you, that's what makes you you. Yeah, but that is that cannot be separated from the entirety of everything everywhere. You know, um, if you if you think about it, hopefully you'll understand uh, what I'm saying here. Okay, you say it seems very puzzling why I find myself in this particular body. 
my mind, my intuition tells me something must have caused me to begin here. Yes, everything that's happened since the dawn of time has conspired to cause uh, particular five aggregates that you label I or me to, to be here now. Why do I find myself living the life of this person and not some other person? Uh, well, that's the reason. It's because uh, the universe, suchness, unfolded in such a way that that five aggregates that carries around the concept of I um, is the product of all of this. Does this continuity abruptly begin at birth and end, end at death? I think it should be clear from what I'm saying that absolutely not. This continuity, uh, this, it, goes, it goes back way beyond your birth, like I say, to the beginning of time, the Big Bang, whatever, you know, and, uh, and uh, the time of the Buddha, they thought, you know, they, they didn't think in terms of any kind of a beginning. Nowadays, uh, we think that there's a beginning, but it doesn't matter. It, the, your, your beginning was just part of the same flow of continuity, of causality, uh, and your death is just a continuation of that same uh, continuation of causality. So I hope that puts it all in perspective for you. Uh, could that causality lead to some other experience of some other being? Um, uh, well, it actually does. Every moment is a moment of, uh, every present moment is a moment of creation. The past is fixed. Causes and conditions led to this moment. But this present moment is not deterministic. The, it is probabilistic. All of this causality creates what you could imagine as a uh, possibility space of what is possible to happen in the next moment concerning you as this five aggregates. And within that possibility space, there are different probabilities, but there's nothing to determine exactly where you're going to move in the next moment. So you say, could that causality lead to some other experience of some other being? Hopefully it will, that you will use that, that uh, possibility space and apply the Dharma and practice moment by moment so that you become a different kind of being than what you are, <laughs> if that makes sense. And uh, likewise, if, if there had been Two of you, well, let's say that you were one, one of a pair of identical twins. You start out with the same genetics, but you can't have the same experiences, either internally and externally. And so you will, you will evolve over time in, in different directions. One might become a Buddha, and the other might become a, 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 a cruel and evil person. Who knows? Uh, it's, not, it's within the realm of possibility. So even if we are without a self, could the continuity of experience continue? Well, there is no self. We don't need a self. The continuity of experience does continue, which is why we don't need a self. The only reason we need a self is that's just a tool that Mother Nature gives us in, to, in, each, in the possibility space of every present moment 
to uh, ensure our survival and well-being. And and uh, it's but it's one that you know it's a two-edged sword because uh, you know a, a simpler organism than ourselves it would help keep them alive but it wouldn't cause them the suffering it does us. You say, I often think metaphysics would be less confusing if I were experiencing all being simultaneously, but that is certainly not the case. Uh, yeah, so um, yes, metaphysics would be not confusing at all if you could grasp the totality of, uh, of ultimate reality. But uh, as they say, only the mind of God can know the mind of God. And, or only God can know the mind of God, to use a, a non-Buddhist uh, <laughs> euphemism, but you get the idea that, uh, yeah, that's, I, I, I'd love to have that kind of omniscience, but unfortunately, uh, it's, uh, it's not available, but uh, would make things easier, I agree. So I hope what I've told you when you hear this recording will help, and I hope perhaps it's been of some utility to the rest of you here. Yeah, Can I have a question? Oh, certainly, yes. Um, you've said that the sense of self is something that's uh, also in other animals and that's deep in our, in our mind. Mm -hmm. I've also heard you in another video that uh, the difference between that the um, unbalance of the attention and awareness of the metaphorically speaking uh, left and right brain were mm -hmm. uh, a phenomena that uh, started uh, around were a cultural phenomena that started around five thousand years ago about seventy thousand years ago uh, i'm basing that on yuval harari's work yeah uh, so uh, is that uh, the, the sense of self is something that's uh, related with that uh, difference between attention and awareness and it's a cultural phenomenon or is something that it's yeah. more it is, deep? Yeah, it's very much related. Uh, if you look at the, uh, it's called the dorsal attentional network, which is responsible for what we are calling attention here. And if you if you uh, delineate its characteristics, the characteristics of attention as such, uh, and compare them to uh, what the so-called ventral attentional system, which is not really attention, it's what we call awareness, we find that they're distinctly different in a variety of ways. One of the ways is that system that we experience as attention is very egocentric meaning that it, it takes as its point of reference this self and it regards the world completely in reference to the self. The, uh, the uh, system that gives rise to the subjective experience of awareness is allocentric. So what it does is it takes in the the environment or as much of the environment as we can experience in a given moment. And it places the self within that, that uh, allocentric perception. So uh, uh, essentially, 
from the point of view of awareness, well, <laughs> that was funny that I said that. Essentially, what this body and this mind are, with from the point of view of awareness, are a perspective, a point of view within a whole, and it's the whole that is predominant. From the point, from the perspective of attention, this is the center, uh, and and the significance of everything else around me, or even inside of me, is the significance relates to this idea of of self, of me. Now. Yeah. So the two are connected, and one of the ways I think that we can understand the work that we're doing, this is, a, this is one of my more radical things, is that, uh, uh, and, and if you would like to know more about this, I highly recommend uh, uh, the, uh, there's a book, somebody else, that's going to come to my mind or somebody else is going to give it to me. The Emperor and His Emissary. Um, anyway, um, what we are doing when we are training our minds, we are developing sati, sati sampajana. We are developing awareness. We are developing metacognitive introspective awareness. We're developing that whole part of ourselves that is allocentric and, and sees us as interconnected and understands uh, the contents of the mind as being uh, empty of being real in themselves and so on and so forth. It already understands these things. Uh, so right now, the, uh, these left brain processes, the uh, attention, we, we're, we, we have awareness deficit or disorder. We experience everything through attention. We're very egocentric in our uh, perception. These practices are leading us away from that. So the attention now becomes the tool. Oh, the name of the book is The Master and His Emissary. Yes, uh, and it's by Mc, Ian McGilchrist. And I think he's hit on something that's very correct there. His, his details may, may turn out in the end not to be perfectly correct, but, but uh, the principle is that, uh, yes, we all have the Buddha, a Buddha nature within us. It's that undeveloped capacity of the right hemisphere of our brain that gives rise to the kind of minimal awareness that human beings are uh, normally experience. Someone who is trained uh, to awaken uh, or whatever terms are used in other uh, uh, spiritual disciplines, uh, that what that is, is that is a movement away from from using uh, for being exclusively dominated by attention and left brain processes and to coming into uh, a balance that actually we come to a new place that's never existed before but by having evolved these capacities in a in a and a being as complex as humans we have the ability to transcend our biological evolution and uh, so yeah there's a real strong correlation between uh, self and uh, or, or egocentrism uh, and uh, attention and uh, a holistic perspective uh, of uh, of awareness. So. Um, 
Adrian, it's, it's me. an interesting question, a little bit different. Are you here, Adrian? Yes. Oh, good. Wonderful. Yeah, that's something that is very interesting to contemplate. Um, where does beauty, where does the sense of beauty fit into this? Uh, and I, I, I like the way you begin your questions. The relationship between the ego and attachment with respect to popular music and classical music. And the way I perceive that, and I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't the way you perceive it as well, is that popular music is, it's all about the self. And it's all about the self having fun. And it's about stimulating the self. And it's like, it's about being danceable too. Or it's about eliciting uh, all kinds of emotions uh, so that we can uh, cathartically experience every emotion from extreme uh, joy and wildness and craziness to, to loss and sorrow and, and uh, you know, brokenhearted uh, kind of thing. So that, that popular music is every generation's expression of their differentiation into a uh, new unique human being and of course it's all uh, it, it's all related to uh, what's being differentiated is is the self uh, it's it's each generation's process of leaving their parents and leaving the the uh, uh, points of view of the previous generation behind and creating something new. What we call classical music is its creators, Beethoven, um, um, Brahms, uh, you could just go down the list. They were, they were trying to be, they were trying to create something that was transcendental in some way. And that's, I think, why uh, generation after generation, once people get over their fascination with popular music, they begin to appreciate the uh, classical music. Uh, and, and this is a process that still goes on. There's music being created today that people are going to be listening to in centuries from now, if there are any people centuries from now. But, uh, in, in the same way, because it's coming from a different place. It's coming from the creation of beauty. And this is, this is the whole thing about, there is obviously a connection between spirituality and our sense of wonder and beauty. Why, why do we consider a sunset beautiful? Why is a certain uh, natural forms invoke in us such a, a powerfully spiritual sense of appreciation of, uh, of, of beauty. And I don't think anybody could come up with an explanation for why that would have evolved genetically. I think rather that it is something that uh, uh, comes from something much deeper and much more fundamental. It's that uh, those, those emotions uh, 
of appreciation and uh, of wonder uh, at, at anything um, come from our ability to sense at a deep level the truth. Um, and what is the truth? The truth is that we are a part of something much more vast than ourselves that is unfolding. And these kinds of experiences, uh, we touch into that. Now what genetics does cause us to do is if you're a heterosexual male, you'll appreciate the beauty of a, uh, of a woman. Uh, whereas you probably won't look at a female muskrat in the same way, you know, and likewise for, for women and men. This is the kind of appreciation uh, of things that genetics gives us. But we have gone beyond that. Uh, we, we can take the emotional equipment that we've been uh, endowed with by evolution to ensure our survival to have preferences for things that for reasons that we are not even conscious aware of when we're following them but to to have certain kinds of appreciations that serve the purposes of mother nature but having been given that kind of emotional equipment and having been given minds that can sense this greater truth that can sense the truth that one experiences with the complete development of uh, fourth path, um, this sense of, of dwelling in suchness, uh, this, we have that capability. It's the Buddha nature within us that is uh, giving us this. And we can appreciate this in music, we can appreciate it in art, we can appreciate it in nature. We can appreciate it in, in so many different ways. But does that address uh, what you were uh, asking about, Adrian? Or do you? Is, yes. Goodness. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that uh, uh, hasn't been explored. I have a book that I got many years ago uh, on uh, uh, aesthetics and uh, and, and beauty that touched on this somewhat. I don't know where that book is now, but it's, it's something that could warrant further exploration from the point of view of, of uh, spirituality, because I think that we're always using this in spiritual traditions anyway. It's just, it's not something that we, we bring the kind of deliberateness to. But look at the, the most beautiful structures in the world are predominantly religious structures, right? They're expressions of spirituality. Same thing with some of the greatest art in the world. And so I, I think that's, that's evidence of this uh, connection that is, is very real and very profound. <coughs> well, that was nice to have a chance to talk about that. So thanks, thanks Adrian, appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, question, John. Oh, did someone want to say something? Okay. A question from John Besh. I see you're here, John. Hello. 
Hi. Okay, so John, you say uh, you're currently working at stage four, sometimes stage five. When practicing at stage four, I found it helpful to begin intending to use awareness to detect subtle dullness, stage five practice, as I understand it, as this also seems to help keep attention more stable. Mm -hmm. I also find myself sometimes wanting to do the stage five body scan and even a sort of whole body breathing, even though it often has been interrupted by gross distraction. Uh, do you think following these tendencies would be wise or should I try to keep myself to stage four practices and simply be aware of these intentions until attention has been stable without gross distractions for some time? Is there any rule of thumb about how long I should simply maintain attention at the nose with subtle distractions and subtle dullness before beginning stage five practices? Okay, well, let's see if I can help uh, help you with that. So when you go to do uh, uh, these stage five practices, uh, you find it often interrupted by gross distraction. So this is an indication that you need to keep developing that introspective awareness that's going to allow you to recognize a, uh, well, what you want to do is you, you cultivate the introspective awareness that's going to allow you to recognize a subtle distraction that's, going, that's becoming uh, a gross distraction so that you can correct for it. And then you repeat that enough until your subjective experience is that you became aware of a subtle distraction that was beginning to stand out more and the mind automatically corrected for it so that it, from this point on, gross distractions just don't arise. They're automatically corrected for and they're automatically corrected for sooner and more easily. And of course, this doesn't mean that you're not gonna have a, a, a sit where, they, where that doesn't happen, or at the beginning of a sit, that that might happen before your mind settled in. But you see, my point is you're trying to get to a place where there's an automatic correction for gross distraction. The same thing for progressive subtle dullness. Now, um, usually, uh, overcoming gross distraction is actually aided somewhat by having that stable, subtle dullness that we try to overcome in stage five. Um, I say usually it is. I don't, it's not at all necessary. If you're trying to completely eliminate subtle distraction at stage four, I, I'm afraid that that's more likely just to hold you back from being able to truly do the stage five practices just because you're trying to take too big a bite at once, you know, and so it's going to be longer and, and harder to chew that up uh, and, and achieve uh, freedom from subtle dullness. Your goal in stage five is basically that we all, we all are in a state of subtle dullness of some degree or another before we sit down on the cushion. What you want is the experience of between from the time you sit down on the cushion to the time you get up that there is less dullness and there is more powerful, there is more conscious power. And so um, 
that's why it's easier to take it in these uh, smaller bite-sized pieces. So deal with the to deal with the progressive subtle dullness until correction for it becomes automatic, and deal with the gross distractions before uh, until they become uh, uh, corrected for automatically. At that point, let me just make sure I'm still centered here. Uh, at that point, you can take on you can take on uh, subtle sustained subtle dullness and the, the progressive increase in conscious power that is the, the work of stage five uh, more effectively. Now, anytime you have a period without gross distractions of say, well, if, let me put it this way. If in your meditations you start regularly having periods without gross destruction and without uh, progressive subtle dullness that last 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes even, you know. But when you have periods where it, it, there's a significant period of time on a fairly regular basis where you actually are free of the problems of stage four, then by all means go ahead and start working on stage five, on uh, detecting not just becoming aware of that sustained subtle dullness, but overcoming it. And if you can, if, if don't rush into the body scanning, but when when you start getting good at recognizing uh, any any decrease in the uh, clarity and intensity and the vividness of your perceptions, either in awareness or attention, then go ahead. Do the body scanning there. You still may have you, you still may have the rest of your sit. You know you uh, you feel like you're entering one of these periods where you can do stage five practices. You go ahead and do it, and then comes a point where the gross distractions start coming back, or or you can't you can't you're not able to catch the dullness quickly quickly enough anymore. Then just go back and do the stage four practices. So. Um, it almost sounds like that's what you're talking about now. It's, and so continue to do that. Just don't push it so that you're, you're, you're trying to go farther than you're really ready to go. Because like I say, it'll have the opposite effect. It'll, it's, it's like taking too big a bite and it's too hard to chew it and swallow it. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're on the right track. Let's see, there's another part of your question here. Um, I think you basically addressed it um, more okay. or less. The rule of thumb, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, okay, great. I'm, Thank I, you very much. Really appreciate it. I, I wish you great success and that Next, next time you have a question to ask, you'll be in stage six. <laughs> All right. um, Marcel Prestold, Marcel with us today. Oh, let's see, how many questions do we have left? We've got Marcel, John, Stephen. Maybe we'll.
it's probably better to just answer the questions in the order that they were posted because otherwise, yeah. you know, right. folks for whatever reason can't make the call, just don't get their questions answered. That's right. I agree with that. Good advice, Ted. Thank you. Okay, so Marcel says, Dear Chuladasa, my question concerns the progress of insight, or to be more precise, what happens after an insight experience? Because of time zones, I won't be able to attend. Uh, love to hear your thoughts on the following. It seems to me that usually in all kinds of texts, the event of an insight experience is kind of the end of the story. You discern an object, you discern its origin and cessation, and bam, it's gone. Especially with deeply ingrained ideas, habit patterns, views, I feel that the process of release takes longer than achieving said discernment. And it's absolutely, that is absolutely true, Marcel. Let me just make sure I'm still centered here. Yeah. Uh, that is, that is absolutely true. Um, an insight experience is just that. It's, it's an experience. And an insight experience can trigger insight. But what we're talking about here uh, is, is, yes, these are really deeply ingrained ideas. The idea that, uh, the idea that objects uh, somehow have, uh, uh, you know, they, they have a period of existence where uh, where they are, are uh, real uh, that and that includes ourselves that we somehow have a self nature the idea the ideas of permanence and uh, and the these are deeply ingrained ideas. The idea that I'm a self is a deeply ingrained idea. The idea that the representation I carry in my mind of the world around me is an accurate representation, uh, uh, that's, that's another deeply ingrained idea. Uh, the, and these don't, they don't go away usually as a result of a single experience. But the thing is, these ideas are a description of the world that is not accurate. And all throughout your life, you've been having experiences that have, where the true nature of things has shown through. You've had experiences where you felt connected to everything. You've had experiences where there wasn't a, a sense of self present. Most of those you completely overlook. But they did register. They're there in your mind. And what makes an insight experience is uh, any experience that causes you to be conscious of the fact that things aren't quite the way you always have uh, understood them to be. That's an insight experience. And a, a, if an insight experience is powerful enough, it will trigger insight. Now, that's where your mind takes in this new, this is particularly where the right hemisphere of your mind, the part of your mind that the awareness uh, is, uh, is created and projected into consciousness. This information is taken in by this part of your mind and it's in a strong enough form, it's a powerful enough experience that rather just being set aside as another a little momentary anomaly in the course of, of your life, it triggers that part of your mind to recognize a pattern 
that's there. A pattern that describes reality in a different way than you had understood it before. And that reveals that the way that you and the rest of the world have been understanding things is in fact an erroneous uh, point of view. That's an insight. And once you have one insight, it's inevitable. Your, your mind has connected, collected all of this information over a lifetime uh, about, uh, about all of the different ways that we see, how the different ways that we see things are uh, incorrect to some degree. And so once one insight begins to gel, once new, one new pattern of this is how things really are, then the others start to develop as well. This is the process that will, when all of these, those insights reach a, uh, uh, a collective degree of maturity that's appropriate enough, that's where stream entry will occur. That's where there will be a profound shift in your perception of reality. You still have a long way to go. Stream entry is just the beginning of it. But yeah, this sort of idea that you see something, uh, uh, you have an inside experience and that insight automatically follows from this is, is not the case. People often have very powerful inside experiences that don't that aren't enough to trigger that process to take place. And um, the kinds of descriptions that you've probably read, um, these lead to a lot of misunderstandings. People will have a powerful insight experience. And the, of course, their mind will react to that insight experience. But if it doesn't, if it if it doesn't unfold, and eventually become a new perspective by which you understand and view reality, it hasn't become an insight. But people can mistakenly think because of these descriptions that they've had insight, and then they can carry on from that point to where they not only um, they only not only feel like they've had an insight, they can come to the conclusion that they've achieved uh, stream entry when they actually haven't as well. So yes, it's a process. And uh, the more well-trained your mind is, the more likely this process is to take place. If you don't have powerful metacognitive introspective awareness, you're far less likely to have an insight experience turn into a true insight. If you have not trained your mind so that it can use attention in the proper way, and the proper way to use attention is to observe closely. Uh, that's, what, that's what the word that gets translated from the poly as investigate means. It doesn't mean to analyze. If, you're, if your attentional faculties are trained so that your metacognitive awareness can direct attention to these anomalies, observe them, collect, collect the detail in data, uh, the, the 
uh, the detailed data about the experience, this becomes available then to awareness to then put together this big picture from, the, uh, from your uh, collective past experiences. Uh, this, this too is an aspect of the Buddha nature that we already have in, inside of us. So you're, for, an, for an insight experience to lead to insight, it's much, much more likely to happen if you have a well-trained mind, if you have what the Buddha referred to as, as right samadhi uh, and right sati. Uh, you know, samasati and samasamadhi. And what samasamadhi is defined by the Buddha in the suttas in terms of, of jhana. But what it comes, ultimately what it comes down to is simply, it's an alarm, it's uh, simply the fact that you have achieved apana samadhi. You have achieved that place where Attention no longer moves spontaneously, but moves under the direction of, uh, uh, of awareness. And uh, you have sati, and uh, you have powerful sati. And you have, if you have sati, that's that's kind of sati that's known as sati sampajana, uh, which is metacognitive introspective awareness. Then these two working together can take even a minor. Uh, insight experience and from it trigger a recognition of this pattern that is insight and that will lead you to uh, will lead you to awakening and stream entry then we'll, yeah. um, so yep Marcel you're right and I hope that helps um, we I'm working on putting something together to describe in more or less the kind of detail I do in uh, the mind illuminated uh, how uh, how this process of insight occurs uh, uh, how it develops until it leads to insight and then how insight develops till it leads to uh, awakening so um, uh, your support is helping make that happen so thank you very much um, John Selwyn is asking about taking Basaka precepts. And uh, John, if you would please get in touch with me directly uh, at upasaka.chuladasa at uh, gmail.com, we can discuss this further. I've, we've done this before. And uh, with, under the right circumstances, we could do it again. Um, Stephen Cartledge, you here by any chance, Stephen? No, nope. okay. Well, Stephen is asking about uh, uh, Fire Casino, and I don't have a good memory for names, but it sounds to me as though perhaps Stephen might have been one of those people that. I uh, was at uh, Fire Casino retreat that I attended uh, uh, the first uh, week of back in October. And Stephen asked, "Do you have an up updated update to your thinking regarding the meditational value of Fire Casino practice?" 
is there a way to adapt the TMI practice to use the fire casino as a meditation object? Uh, well, um, as you may have already heard me say, the ideas that I had going into the retreat about how the fire casino might be useful uh, didn't actually pan out uh, in, in the time that I was there. And uh, my feeling about it at the moment is that uh, it's an interesting practice, but um, I, I don't, at this point in time, I couldn't really say whether it has any particular advantages. Uh, and I have other things that seem to be more important uh, to work on. And so I've sort of, uh, I'll leave that up to you and others to uh, investigate further. Some of the things that I thought, some of the ways I thought it might be useful is that uh, uh, looking at a candle flame and then watching the after image afterwards um, uh, can uh, hold one's attention. And it's not the same thing as have develop, having developed stable attention because it's only the, uh, the fascination of the object itself uh, and, and the bit of a challenge that's involved with uh, not letting the after image slip away from you that, um, that creates the concentration. But I originally thought that this might, might be a way to give uh, meditators uh, uh, um, an early taste of what it's like to have very stable and strong attention. But then what I discovered is that uh, it's very easy to keep your eyes focused on, on both the, the flame and the after image and for your mind to wander. And I found, you know, uh, the whole question was whether this would be useful for somebody who did not have stable attention. That's a question I couldn't answer myself, right? All I could say is that it was really easy to maintain concentration on. But uh, of the people there who didn't, at that retreat, who didn't have uh, that kind of stability of attention, they said they found that their minds were wandering when they were using that as well. The other thing that I have found in my own experience is that uh, when you get to what's referred to as the Merck, with, uh, after the uh, after the uh, after image of the flame has disappeared, um, that uh, it was extremely, that w what often happens uh, with me, and I gather with uh, a lot of the experienced meditators who do this, when they get to the Merck, then a light will appear, and that light's very easy to enter the luminous jhana for, uh, for experienced meditators. Uh, using that, and so I had wondered whether it might have uh, uh, similar similar value for uh, uh, less experienced meditators, or perhaps might have that kind of value for uh, 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 somebody who is actually maybe stage six, stage seven, and give them, and, and just learning jhanas, whether or not it might give them access to a deeper jhana. Um, I wasn't able to establish one way or another whether that would apply. Um, the other thing is that it produces, uh, for reasons that are physiologically well understood, doing a practice in this particular way produces hallucinations. And I had thought that perhaps those hallucinations would be of a nature that could be uh, 
uh, conducive to maybe purifications of very deep material. And once again, that's not something that I really had the opportunity to ascertain whether, whether it could be useful in that way or not. So, um, yeah, where I am with it right now is, is it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but uh, I, uh, um, I don't think I'm going to put much effort in the near future, at least, into seeing whether it has any utility uh, with TMI, but uh, others may do that, and I'm looking forward to hearing from them if they do. So, all right. Move on to David Johnson's question. Um, just check. David here by any chance? Well, Hope I'm not going to miss questions of people that are here by doing these in order, but I'm going to do them in order. <laughs> okay. Uh, my question is regarding the practices outside of meditation that best serve someone's meditation progress. In the book, you use the word virtue to describe the types of actions that, in your daily life, would lead you towards greatest happiness as well as progress on the cushion. However, I'm having a hard time understanding what virtuous action means. Specifically, does non-virtuous action relate in any way to actions based on the five hindrances? Desire, lethargy, aversion. Um, also, does virtuous action have an element of asceticism? Uh, some spiritual teachers advocate knowing with the body instead of against it for the pursuit of enlightenment. Doesn't going with the body contradict the ascetic practices that are sometimes seemingly encouraged by spiritual teachers? Well, these are two totally different questions here. I, there's a relationship between them. But first of all, the practice of virtue. Um, search as we may, the closest that we can come to some sort of ultimate moral principle is that Dwelling in a realm where a certain amount of pain and suffering is absolutely inevitable, and considering that just as we ourselves wish to experience pleasure and to avoid suffering, this moral principle is that anything that you would do that would increase the unnecessary and avoidable suffering, pain and suffering in this world, uh, anything that you did that would increase this, the, un, uh, the unavoidable component would be immoral by, by that standard. Anything that you did that did not increase the uh, uh, avoidable and uh, 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 pain and suffering in the world would be virtuous by, by, due to the fact that it's not non-virtuous. The most virtuous activities that you can engage in are those that actually reduce the total amount of unnecessary and avoidable pain and suffering in the world. Now this applies both to yourself and to everyone else because you're part of the world, right? And if you do something that causes harm to yourself, 
you're increasing the unnecessary harm and that's being done in the world and the unnecessary pain and suffering in the world, right? So, um, and the hindrances that you mentioned, they're all parts of these. You talk about tobacco, social media, porn, etc., desire. Well, the thing about these desires, uh, tobacco, that's going to be harmful to you. It's also harmful to those around you uh, in your immediate vicinity. Um, I mean, that definitely uh, is a non-virtuous activity. Uh, we can't always predict the results of all of our actions. As a matter of fact, we can't really predict accurately the results of any of our actions, but we do the best we can. And so to practice virtue means to, uh, to not do something that is going to unnecessarily cause harm to anybody or anything else, including yourself. Uh, why, why would somebody do that anyway? Well, the reason is through desire and selfishness, through craving and selfishness. That's the only reason that you would do that. So if you were to practice virtue, not just for the sake of following a set of rules, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that, but for the fact that, that when desire arises that would lead you to do something, that is unhealthy for yourself or harmful to anything or anyone else, then you, if you practiced denying that desire, then it will be easier to deny that desire in the future. If anger should arise and the uh, wish to say something or do something that was cruel or hurtful, if you resisted that, then you will not be as vulnerable to uh, acting out of aversion in the future. Ultimately, you will not be as likely to have an unwholesome uh, craving like that arise at all. Where do desire and aversion arise? Where does craving come from? It comes from the sense of a self, a self that wants to take care of itself at the expense of, of others or other. Okay? So what we have here is self-clinging and craving is, is what would motivate us to do something that was non-virtuous in the sense of the moral principle that I just described to you. And so what you're doing, if you're practicing virtue, knowledgeably and not as rote uh, if you're practicing it knowledgeably, knowledgeably is you are intentionally weakening the bonds that craving has over you that you've developed over a lifetime every time you have succumbed to craving you have made your vulnerability to craving stronger you have increased the strengths of those bonds that craving has arisen out of a form, some form or another of self-clinging. Every time you succumb to that craving, you also succumb to self-clinging and you strengthen the, the, the tendency of your mind to continue and to increase self-clinging. 
anytime you do the opposites of these two, you're reducing the power of craving over you and you're reducing the amount of self-clinging. You are moving yourself closer to awakening. Okay? So, um, now, this doesn't, if you think about it, this doesn't imply asceticism. What it does is implying, apply non-indulgence. And there's a big difference. You know, if something is virtuous by the definition that I gave you, in other words, it's not going, it's not going to be harmful to you and it's not going to be harmful to anyone else. It's not going to create any harm to the planet or anything else. Then, then uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a virtuous action. And uh, you don't have to forswear pleasant experiences. You can still enjoy something that tastes good if it's not actually harmful to you. If you're a healthy person, good weight, get exercise regularly. There is absolutely nothing wrong with having a great big bowl of chocolate ice cream at all as long as it's not at the expense of something, someone or something else. Now here you have to look at, you have to look beyond right speech and right action and you have to look at right livelihood. There are some bowls of ice cream that you could eat which are more virtuous than other bowls of ice cream. That's a decision that you have to make. And, uh, but it's, but there's no implication of asceticism. Now somebody could choose Somebody might choose not to ever eat ice cream because it's very hard to find ice cream that hasn't been produced in dairy factories where the way the cattle are, the way that the dairy cattle are treated is just abominable. And um, all the other problems that go along with that, the damage to the environment that uh, dairy factories, uh, uh, you know, these factory farm dairies produce, so on and so forth. But if you're doing it for the sake of being an ascetic, then you're just doing it for some kind of self-aggrandizement. If you're doing it because you recognize that it is producing harm in, in some sense, and uh, then that's a completely different motivation. So it's all about your motivation and the combination of your motivation, your intention, I should say, your karma, your, your intention, it's all about your intention and your combination of what knowledge you bring to the decision, right? Um, if you weren't aware of where ice cream came from, um, you, you might be comfortable eating it, and then you might find out where ice cream comes from, and you might no longer be comfortable eating it. Uh, on the other hand, you could, there's, a, there's a thousand different ways to look at any one of these things. So we can't judge someone else for eating ice cream. Um, I can't judge someone who works for Raytheon because they may in fact be motivated, uh, even though their job is contributing to the creation of weapons, they may be doing their job in such a way or for such reasons that uh, I don't know about and I'm not aware of that uh, makes, makes that, that job right livelihood for them. Right. Um, so I hope I hope this clarifies 
uh, somewhat for you, the whole issue of the practice of virtue. It really begins with right thought and right intention, uh, which lead to right or wrong speech, they lead to right or wrong action, and they lead to right or wrong livelihood. But, but ultimately, it's ahimsa, it's harm, harmlessness, only you can't be completely harmless. It's impossible. You can't live in this realm. There's, like I say, there's an inevitable, irreducible, unavoidable degree of pain and suffering. Uh, you know, otherwise, you just have to sit still in one spot and not eat or drink until you die. But then somebody still have to clean up the mess afterwards. So what do you do? You do the best that you can. That's the practice of virtue. And if you practice virtue properly, it is a practice that leads to uh, awakening to overcoming craving and to overcoming the suffering that arises out of craving and overcoming the self-clinging that gives rise to craving and suffering. So. Any additional thoughts anybody would like to throw in? That alarm earlier was to take my meds and I didn't take them none. I thought you were having a couple of peanuts because you were hungry. Mm. That would be a good idea too, but I don't have any peanuts. <laughs> okay, well we've got been at this for about an hour and twenty minutes. Um, hmm. Well, I think we have, uh, at least, a, I think we probably have enough questions left to to do a follow-up. Is there someone here who is here who has a question that I haven't answered? I'd be happy to, to since I've spent the last few minutes answering questions for people that weren't here. Anyone have a question? That is, anyone who is here have a question? I'm here. William Wallen. Okay. All right, William. Let me just find your question. Here it is. Aha, good question. All right. I remember reading this earlier. Um, you ask, what do you mean by mind state versus an emotional experience or other mental dhammas? I've heard you discuss states in association with jhanas, uh, nirvana, joy, piti, happiness, emotions, uh, ground state, uh, wholesome mental state, non-progressive state of subtle dullness. Are states simply more pervasive, somehow affecting multiple sub-minds to set an overall tone to experience? Much more than this or something entirely different. Is it helpful to learn how to identify different states? Yes, it absolutely is. And let me, let me just uh, 
deal with the question as you've have you as you've presented it here. Um, the mind is an open, dynamic, complex system. It's the kind of system that, due to its complexity, can exist in a variety of stable states. And not only that, it's due to its complexity, it consists of many subsystems, and those subsystems also, uh, uh, in some cases, can uh, exist in a variety of different states, okay? Different, relatively stable states. I mean, to get into this very deeply, I'd encourage you to read Joanna Macy's uh, book on um, uh, uh, mutual causality and Buddhism and general systems theory. You know, it's wonderful reading. Uh, anyway, um, so when we talk about states of the mind or states of the brain, and the two, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence to these, right? Uh, we can talk about an overall state of the mind, or we can be talking about the state of some subcomponent of the system as a whole, which will affect the overall state, but it, it may affect it quantitatively or qualitatively, but it would still, we would still define it as it would still be in the same, you know, uh, a way of representing um, uh, systems that can exist in multiple stable states is as an uneven plane where there are dips and grooves that, uh, you know, you can imagine uh, something rolling around on the surface will go into, into a dip and it will take a large perturbation to bump it out of the dip. So, um, that's a stable state. Some some dips could be deeper than others. It just and so that's what we mean when we say that some states are more stable than others. And uh, in a complex system, uh, we can imagine there being a, a number of balls rolling around, and each of them has a range of of dips and grooves that it could fall into. Right. So this is kind of a uh, uh, kindergarten version of systems, general systems theory. But yes, to these things that you're referring to uh, or, or that you've brought up that I refer to as, as states, emotions, uh, emotions are fairly large scale uh, states. Now, Um, yeah, so think of, think of strong emotions like anger, uh, grief, you know, deep sadness, um, joy, um, yeah, well, that'll, that'll do for a, a start. Um, when the mind exists in a particular state, it functions in a particular way that's a reflection of that state. Now, someone could be in a state of, of vengeful anger and also there be associated with it a kind of 
uh, of, of joy, right? So this is, here we could have two different states which are um, somewhat incompatible with each other, but existing at the same time and actually interacting in a way, right? Now, what there wouldn't be in this is there wouldn't be any kind of real happiness, but, um, but there would be the satisfaction of the craving that the anger represents. Okay, uh, so emotions are mental states. Jhanas are mental states. Jhana is a unique kind of state that uh, it's a it's a variant of a unique kind of state that uh, Csikszentmihalyi uh, really uh, laid out for us uh, called flow. And it's a state where the mind basically isolates uh, the, those components of the mind system that are necessary for the performance of a particular activity from all of the other parts of the mind system. So it operates, it, it is a state that we're capable of, and flow states are obviously a tremendous value, so that's why our brain mind has evolved to be able to enter into flow states, is because they're valuable. But it's one where the, the mind excludes everything extraneous to the activity of the moment. And, you know, they train seals to enter into flow states when they go on a mission together, for example. Um, anybody that's performing any kind of highly skilled activity will tend to enter into a flow state. Uh, the difference between people who become successful professional athletes and those that don't is often their ability to enter into a flow state when they're on the court or in the field or whatever it is. So these are states, this is an example of a state of mind. And a jhana is a mental state that is about not physical activity, not bodily activity, but about mental activity. And it's a unique state. Uh, because it's a unique state, uh, you don't have the latitude that you have when your mind is not in the state of jhana. Because jhana functions by exclusion. The opposite of that would be a state of unification. Uh, unification has to be unification around something. But the more of the mind that, uh, that unifies around the intention to um, stabilize attention and uh, hold introspective awareness, um, that, is a, that is a state. That unification produces uh, another kind of state that the mind is capable of being in, a state of some degree of samadhi and some degree of sati, which we're developing. Happiness is not a mental state. Happiness is a feeling. And that's a distinction that's important. Happiness is, uh, emotions are mental states that give rise to feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And uh, they're more complex than that. And emotion evolved uh, as, you know, just think about it for a moment. Emotions involve a complex of concepts, not the least of which is the concept of a self and how things affect the self, etc., and so on. But happiness is a feeling. It's not a state. Um, wholesome mental states, uh, 
that's a mental state where parts of the mind system are uh, giving rise to uh, to craving, and once again, that craving is is rooted in the idea, the deeply seated idea, the notion of of a self, and the protection and uh, enhancement uh, of that self. Uh, progressive and non-progressive dull dullness. These are also reflections of states of parts of the mind. Um, so um, you say, are states simply more pervasive, somehow affecting multiple sub-minds uh, to set an overall tone to experience? Some states are. Some states are more global than others. And the state of meditative joy, the fully developed grade five PT, is such a state that it, it uh, as a matter of fact, joy in any of its forms is a very powerful state and affects many sub-minds, and it affects the overall tone of experience in, in particular ways. Um, but they, we have global states, and within a global state, we have states of different uh, uh, parts of the mind system, which can vary. So even a global state is, can take a multiplicity of forms due to the states that, that uh, uh, subsystems within the larger system are in. Um, so in, in that sense, I think I'm, yes, they are, they're pervasive. And what we, what we're trying to do, you could look at is what we're trying to do is to uh, develop certain states, combinations of states, global and a small, lower level, that uh, become not only hyper-stable, but reinforcing. Uh, they reinforce each other. And then they manifest as traits. Now, this isn't, this isn't an unusual behavior for our brain-mind, because we're doing this throughout our lives. Uh, you know, uh, when somebody says, wants to know somebody about something, they say, what do you do for a living? What they're really asking is, what kind of a person have you created uh, you know, uh, what, you know, if somebody says, I'm a lawyer, they're basically describing somebody who has cultivated a collection of mutually self-supporting states that allow them to be a very effective lawyer. If somebody says, I'm a computer programmer. Likewise, they are able to be a computer programmer because they have, their, their mind is capable of entering into, um, states at multiple levels which support each other and allow them to be very effective in that. And so in a sense, it's in terms of the mind, it's not that different than say an athlete who through a combination of practice and the ability to enter into the quote zone, uh, you know, becomes a, a professional basketball star. Does that help? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, I, I, I had another observation. I don't know how accurate this is. Mm -hmm. uh, that when in, in an emotional state, or at least some kind of a feeling state of fear or anger or sadness arises, if one yeah. is able to just sit with that without uh, arousing the, or without being attached to, the congruent mm -hmm. thoughts that arise with it, yeah. that that 
emotional state uh, will tend to have a much shorter lifespan. That's right. And, uh, maybe even vanishing within a minute and a half. Or yes, exactly. Because for it to persist requires that some other mind, part of the mind be in a mutually supporting state. You know, if it's, if, if the, if we think of it as the planar analogy that I, I used at the beginning, the dip it's in, if some other part of the mind is in a deeper dip, that becomes shallow and it can't stay in there anymore. Uh, right? Uh, yeah, so the, the parts, the different states, different parts of the mind can both stabilize and destabilize other states. And that's, that's just another way of looking at how the Dharma works when we practice the Dharma. We're manipulating all the different states at different levels in the, in the, in the mind system. Uh, and we're doing that in such a way to create traits which result in a completely different way of perceiving reality and, uh, and a way of behaving and, and experiencing reality. Uh, uh, that's, that's the freedom from suffering part. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's what we're after, is to create those traits, those stable, interconnected states, which become, which uh, together constitute the traits that we describe as the Dharma. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And I'm going to have to run because I've gone over time. But it was fun. It was great. And we'll do more at some date. We'll set up later on. Um, all right. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>